So we're on Hebrews 8 tonight. And if you picked up some notes out over there at the table, and uh, the, there you can fill that in as we go. I'll read the whole chapter and then we'll look at it in pieces. Let me pray before we get started. Father, thank you for tonight. I pray that you will guide us and direct us as we look into the book of Hebrews and, and the meaning that's there for us. And I pray, Lord, that you will impress upon us the truth of who Jesus is and what his role is in our life and that we would live for you uh, with all of our energy, with all of our heart. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now the main point, don't you like it when the uh, speaker says, the main point, this is what we're talking about tonight. And so we've got the huge advantage in this chapter. He tells us exactly what the point is, and not only in the book, uh, in the, this chapter, but also in the book. The main point, and what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we talked last week about the fact that he is our high priest, our king, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so Jesus is sitting on the throne of, in heaven with the Father, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest, speaking of Jesus, also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law the Levitical priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And so he's basically, uh, God says, Moses, be careful, do it right. I gave you the patterns, I gave you the dimensions, and I'd like you to do it just exactly according to the plan but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. When I do things with the plans, I usually modify them as I go along for several reasons. One is I think it'll work better a different way. The other one is I make a mistake, and so I have to adjust to the mistake. And so God said to Moses, no adjustments, no, uh, no mistakes. Make it exactly as I tell you to make it. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And so the theme of Hebrews is that the old covenant uh, doesn't work very well. The new covenant is so much better. Why would anybody want to go back to doing it the old way? And so he uses this phrase, better promises, better covenant, uh, better mediator, uh, all through the book. The new covenant is just better. It's been enacted, um, enacted on better promises, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second finding fault with them he says behold days are coming says the lord when i will effect a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant which i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of egypt for they did not continue in my covenant i did not care for them says the lord for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days says the lord i will put my laws into their minds I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That's the old covenant, the one that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. 
So if you have your notes, point number one, the main point. Again, he says that the main point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is now our high priest and will be forever. It's a change in priesthood. The Old Testament operated by the Levitical priesthood, um, and now that has all been changed. He is our high priest and everything that that means. He is my savior. He is my brother. He is my friend. He is my creator. He is my God. And he is my high priest. Let me read to you. I don't know if I gave those to you to put in the PowerPoint. I, I think I did. Hebrews 2.17. Next. Okay. I'm going to read uh, some extra verses I put together. Uh, they won't be on PowerPoint, so I'll just read through. These are all verses that declare Jesus as high priest. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, speaking of Jesus, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he became flesh just like us so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so twice in that passage, he is our high priest and one who can sympathize with us because he's gone through what we've gone through. Hebrews 5.1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so was Jesus. Hebrews 5, 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And moving on to verse 9 in the same chapter, chapter 5, and having been made perfect. Made perfect, that's Jesus. It's not talking about sinless, it's talking about character. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6.20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 7, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham he was, as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, Hebrews 7, 17, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever. Hebrews 7, 21, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he, Jesus, with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Hebrews 7, 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son, Jesus, made perfect forever. And then the chapter we're on tonight, uh, chapter 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also has something to offer. And then in chapter 9, But when Christ appeared as a high priest 
of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So in the book of Hebrews, there's 14 references to Jesus being a high priest. So evidently, that was important to the writer. He's writing to Jewish believers. Uh, he wants them to know, you're not under the old system. Don't go back to the old system. It didn't work. And so stick with Christ. Faithfully follow and serve him. Number two, our high priest is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so the right hand is a position of power. As fully devoted followers of him, we will sit on a throne right next to him as a reward for faithful service to him. <clears throat> Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and we will sit at the right hand of Jesus, the church, the bride of Christ. Hebrews 8.1, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Revelations 3.21 he who overcomes, little uh, quiz, what's the Greek word for overcome? Nike. Nikeo, a Nike shoes. That's the Greek word for winner, champion, overcomer. Uh, and so that's, if you see the tennis shoes, a Nike, that's where it comes from. So he who overcomes, he who wins he who finishes strong i will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as i also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne he is an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches <clears throat> matthew nineteen twenty eight. jesus said to them truly i say to you that you who have followed me in the re regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. So we will reign with Jesus at his right hand even as he is reigning with the Father. Number three, all of life is a picture. All of life is an illustration, a shadow, a copy of heavenly things of spiritual truth. Our lives, as we live them for God, the laws, the principles, the guidelines in Scripture are all illustrated by things that we can see in real life. And so in Hebrews, again, uh, verse 4, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain, because everything was an illustration of what was in heaven, and God didn't want his picture um, messed up. Romans 1, because that which is known about God is evident, is evident within them. God made it evident to them. Every individual was, is born with an awareness that God exists. It's inside of them, put there by God. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So the, uh, if you went to 
uh, Matt Bain's class this week on Sunday morning, and uh, he is a phenomenal teacher in the whole topic of uh, creation uh, versus evolution. And as you study that, you begin to discover that there isn't very much scientific about evolution. It's been pushed as such. But mankind wants to do away with that. People who don't want to follow God because of this truth, his eternal power, his divine nature, everything about God is clearly seen through what has been made. But once you say all of that just came into existence by accident, as it were, then it destroys that. And uh, so we can pay attention to creation and everything that God created illustrates his nature, his attributes, his power, um, everything about him. As we raised our kids, we constantly would point out things in creation that were an illustration of the nature of God. In fact, we had several really big books uh, that illustrated the attributes of God by creation, each of the chapters with pictures and and. Uh, and so it was a great way to teach them about God's nature by uh, being in nature, in the outdoors. Proverbs 6.6 6 is one example. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. And so you observe from what God created the character trait of diligence and planning and everything illustrates God's nature. Number four, God gave instructions to Moses on the mountain about the blueprints for the tabernacle and details for the sacrifices and worship. And he warned him to be sure to follow everything carefully. So I wonder if Moses was careful, having received that warning from God. Be sure you follow the instructions exactly as I gave them to you. Um, fairly regularly, when I'm building something, I will violate the principle measure twice and cut once. Instead, what I do is uh, measure and cut and throw away and measure and cut again. Uh, I, I'm willing to bet that Moses didn't do that, that he followed, he looked and measured and looked and carefully checked everything because of the warning that God gave. Hebrews 8, 5 again, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says that you make all things, everything according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Number five, in the same way, if we are fully devoted followers of Jesus, we ought to be diligent and careful to follow the rules we have been given in the Word of God faithfully, not with an attitude of casualness. The average Christian today looks at what God has given us in His Word and sees it as an option in their life. Uh, I was talking at the marriage retreat. Anybody here make the marriage retreat? Oh, you guys right front row, super. And so one of the things that I said uh, is that one of the worst things in most marriages that I've done counseling for is anger, either in the part of one or both spouses. And uh, then I read some passages and quoted some passages that says that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Anger resides in the bosom of fools. Anger is stupid. Anger does nothing positive. And so I made a statement is that Husbands and wives ought to diligently work to eliminate all anger, even slight irritation from their marriage. And it's very possible to do that. If you establish that standard as a rule, as a goal that you work towards. But the average individual looks at anger as, huh, everybody messes up, everybody gets angry, nobody's perfect. 
and we excuse anger to the point that we don't work on it, we don't see it as something that needs to be totally eliminated from our life. Uh, I used to be a really angry individual. I tell people if you grew up on a dairy farm sloshing around cow manure, uh, working with cows, you'd have an anger problem too. And it was a major issue in our marriage and I made a goal to get rid of it. And I can't remember the last time I've even gotten slightly irritated uh, at anybody. Occasionally I get irritated at a wrench, but uh, not a person. So it was a goal and it was diligent and I pursued it because I knew it was important in a relationship and I never made an excuse when I blew it. When I got irritated or angry, I confessed it and I worked harder. And I got, but the average individual doesn't see those kinds of things as, eh, it's just a good idea, nice thing to do, not that important. Another example, we'll get to it here in a couple of weeks, is Hebrews 10 where it says, do not forsake gathering together as is the habit of some. That's a very strong statement. It doesn't say, you know, if it works out, I get together with other believers. No, it says, don't forsake gathering together as is the habit of some. It's not a good suggestion. It's a com clear command from God. But the average believer doesn't take any of the commands in Scripture as being something that needs to be pursued seriously. Uh, it's sort of an option, a good idea, nice if you can pull it off. Um, in the same way Moses was given instructions on how to build the tabernacle, we've been given instructions in the Word of God, and we have to pursue it with the same way that Moses would have, uh, having been warned by God. Deuteronomy 6.3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is talking about the law that God gave to the nation of Israel. You should listen, be careful to do it. And the result is that you will, it will be well with you. God will bless you because you're faithful and obedient to follow his principles. Ephesians 5.15, therefore be careful. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Number six is part of the main point of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is now our high priest. We, now, we are now living under the new covenant, not the old covenant, and it's very much better. Jesus as a high priest is perfect. Jesus as a high priest is sympathetic. He understands. He understands everything about us, not only because he lived it, but because he's God and he knows what we think. He knows the circumstances of our life and he is able to uh, give grace, give mercy, give guidance, give help if we come to him regularly as our high priest. Hebrews 8, again, verse 6, Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Finding fault with him, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Number seven, the new covenant began on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, uh, the 120 disciples, followers of Jesus, prayed for 10 days straight, totally devoting themselves to prayer, being in, in one room together. And on the 10th day, Peter stood up and preached as a result of the Holy Spirit coming and filling them all. And 3,000 people became believers, and the church began. The church began on the day of Pentecost, and it will end on the day that Jesus comes and takes us to, to be in heaven. So the new covenant was a promise given to the nation of Israel, but we also are part of that. 
It began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, continues into the, and through the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, the kingdom of Christ, the millennial kingdom. It, and it progresses as we move through the church age and then into the millennial age uh, in control. Obviously, Jesus is not totally king now, but he will be when he returns. But we're moving into that. Uh, we now are the church, the bride of Christ, the kingdom of God. Number eight, a major emphasis in the new covenant is the word of God. The word of God. In the millennial kingdom, God will supernaturally put his word and a full understanding of it in our minds. Somebody was asking the other day about what a passage that they had read meant. And I said, you know, uh, I don't know. And they said, I thought you were a professional and that you knew it all. I said, I make a guess sometimes, but a lot of it I study and uh, I just scratch my head because I don't, I don't quite get it. But I take great satisfaction in the fact that someday I will understand it perfectly. Uh, when I get uh, into the kingdom with my glorified body, his word will be put into my mind and I will understand it completely. Hebrews 8.10 for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws, my word, into their minds. He will put them in, into our minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen. Why? Because we'll understand it totally. And everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. So if the word of God is such a big deal in the kingdom, it ought to be a big deal now. And he is going to put his word into our mind in the kingdom. And now we ought to be putting it into our mind as well by memorizing it. By the way, if you've never gotten Scripture Typer uh, as an uh, app, if you have a smartphone or uh, something of that sort, that is the best thing ever invented since the airplane. Even better than that. It is a great tool for memorizing Bible verses. Um, I struggled to get a verse a week down and I couldn't remember them after I memorized them. Now I've got over 700 memorized and most of them I know really well because of this great tool that some human being invented. It's a great, great, great tool. Number nine, now in this beginning stage of the New Covenant, that's where we're living now, the beginning stage of the New Covenant, we as members ought to be putting God's Word into our minds, writing it on our heart by memorizing and meditating on it. <coughs> There's lots of disciplines in the Christian life. Reading the Bible is a discipline. Coming tonight is a discipline. Praying is a discipline. Examining your life and confessing sin is a discipline. Giving money to the work of God is a discipline. And I would be willing to bet of all the disciplines that there are, uh, there are 21 different disciplines identified by the early church fathers, that the one least practiced of the 21, if we were to put them in a rank of the ones that are most practiced, ones that are least practiced, dead last would be memorizing and meditating on scripture and uh, because it it takes some work it takes some effort and we're generally not into work and effort but it is a basic principle that which is the hardest to do produces the greatest results that which is the most difficult for our flesh to pull off produces the greatest life change in the shortest amount of time Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, 
Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. How is it that you do that? Renew your mind, change your mind by the power of God's word, by memorizing, meditating on it. And then you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Number 10, another major emphasis of the new covenant is knowing the Lord. Knowing the Lord, having an intimate relationship with him. One of the things that's going to be uh, cool there in the kingdom is we'll be able to see him, talk to him, fellowship with him, relate to him. And now we relate to him by faith, his spirit living inside of us, then we'll be able to see him. Hebrews 8.11, They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, all will know me. All will know me from the least to the greatest. By the way, from the least to the greatest, from the least in the kingdom, there's going to be a finite number of people there, and somebody's going to be dead last. The least... I, I'm not thinking that I'll be the greatest, but boy, I don't want to be least, dead last. I, I'd like to be within shouting distance of Jesus. And how we live our life now is a major, major factor as we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and a reward is a major reward that we receive is our nearness to Christ forever. Somebody's going to sit right there. Somebody's going to sit right there. And somebody's going to be way out there least to the greatest, they will all know him. Number 11, now in this beginning stage of the new covenant that we now live in, we ought to be seeking the Lord with all our heart to know him and to have a growing relationship with him that is real. So somebody's going to be least, somebody's going to be greatest. Who, what determines, what's the major factor in determining who is nearest Jesus in the kingdom, who sits at his right hand? Uh, the, the person that gives the most money, the person that uh, goes to church most often, the person that leads the most people to Jesus, what will be the factor that will determine? I think it's the same thing. He who is closest to him in this life will be closest to him in the kingdom. He who is farthest from him in this life, because we don't give him any time, we're too busy with life to spend any time in the word or in prayer, uh, seeking him are the same. They're going to be the ones on the outside looking in. And so we seek him now. Paul made this statement in Philippians 3, but whatever things were gained to me, boats, fishing rods, guns, I'm sure Paul had some of those. Uh, these things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things, everything, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you seek him, you will find him. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Number 12, a huge issue in the Old Covenant was the entire sacrificial system to deal with our sins. But in the New Covenant, sin is no longer an issue. If you read the book of Leviticus, numbers in some of those Old Testament books that describe uh, umpteen different bulls and sheep and turtle doves, and you think, wow, 
and you're tempted to speed read it. I'm tempted to speed read it, and I do. Uh, I can get through five chapters in the book of Leviticus in about 30 seconds. <clears throat> and you think, why all this? Well, that's the price of sin. But Jesus, he became the Lamb of God, and he paid for sin once for all. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. No more. When we get there, sin will not be an issue. Number 13, now in this beginning stage of the new covenant that we live in, we ought to be faithfully practicing the discipline of self-examination, confession of our sin every day. So we are forgiven positionally, that is, we are headed for heaven. Christ paid our sins. We became a believer in Jesus. We were born again, adopted into the family of God. But as we live our life as a believer, uh, we sin. I, I, I sin every day. I'm sure some of you just every other day. Uh, but uh, uh, we all sin, and there's a provision for that. That is, we can confess it, we own it, we don't justify it, we don't blame it on others, we don't ignore it. We confess it to God, and he forgives and he cleanses. 1 Corinthians 11:28. But let a man examine himself. Lots of people like to examine Jim or Bill or Dave, it says, examine yourself, not those around you. And in so doing, he's eat the bread, drink, drink of the cup, speaking of the communion service, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. That is, if you don't examine your own life for sin. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That means they're dead. God judged them for their sin. They were weak. They were sick. And some died. Ananias and Sapphira died uh, because of sin they committed. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So that's a great deal. You examine your own life, confess your own sin. God won't. You don't. He will. If he does, then he disciplines. So I'm careful. I don't go to bed at night without thinking through the day and confessing all known sin to God. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, the most important word in that verse is number one, first verse, two letters, if. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. People regularly say, what if I don't remember them all? If we confess our sins, known sins, he is faithful, righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is all the things we aren't aware of the blind spots, the ones we forgot. Confess all known sin to God, and he will forgive the known sins and the unknown sins. But if you do it daily, your sensitivity to sin grows and increases, and you'll forget less and less. Number 14, the author's argument throughout the book of Hebrews is, why would anybody in their right mind want to go back to the Old Covenant? The Old Covenant didn't work. No one could keep it. Jesus came and kept it perfectly. And then he was nailed to a cross, and while he hung there, my sins and yours were put on him, and he paid the penalty once for all. Once for all. And so we don't want to go back to the old system where we have to slaughter sheep continually for the sins that we can't keep. Hebrews 8:13, when he said, A new covenant is made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. 
So we are in the beginning stages of the new covenant as the church, the bride of Christ. And when Jesus comes, we will enter into the kingdom. I will get a new body <clears throat> and it will be just exactly like Jesus' body. And I will know everything clearly. I will understand everything clearly. All the questions I have in this life about why did God do it this way? Why did he do it this way? Why didn't he do it this way? And when I get there, I will know. I will know all the mysteries. I'll know all the insights. I'll understand the word completely. I will be like him. I will fellowship with him. And my goal is to be very, very near him um, and have fellowship with him for all eternity and to serve him and to receive glory from him for all eternity. Amen. <clears throat>